But as far as suicide prevention stuff, I've not ever had anybody say, shut up, you're a gun owner, what are you talking about this for? You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Welcome back, listening audience, to Walk the Talk America's Guns and Mental Health podcast. I am a co-host of this show, Jake Wiskirchen. We have Michael Sudini, the other co-host of the show. So let's say hello, Mike. Hello, Jake. It's good to see you again. Good to talk to you. It's been a while. <laughs> we never talk. We never talk. And joining us on the show is Brooke Cheney. Hello, Brooke. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm awesome. Um now that we've gotten the, the the fumbles and the foibles out of the way from our you know pre-recorded recorded podcast, uh, it's good to it's good to see you. Good to meet you. You uh, reached out to Mike. You're part of the DC project. I'll let you tell us all about that. Um, but in the meantime, uh, tell us who you are and uh, how you how you came to be here and uh, contacting us and so on and so forth. And and we'll roll from there. All right. So um, DC project is a program that started in, I believe, 2016, where um, Diana Muller decided that women needed to be the face that went and talked to our congressmen and our senators in DC. And by 2000, actually, I guess she started in 2015. I got to meet her in 2016. And we were 50 women from 50 states who would go to DC once a year. And that's how I started there. Prior to that, I was I am a competitive shooter. Uh, I'm an NRA instructor, a training counselor, all of those things. I have my own shooting school here in Connecticut, and I just it's it's in the shooting industry. It seems so. It's actually very small, and if you know one person, you then know somebody else, who then knows somebody else, and that's really how I came to your doorstep here. I'm starting to gather so. that because I'm I'm pretty new to the the gun industry as a whole. I've only been around Mike for a year and a half or so, coming up on two years, and I'm starting to get that same impression where if you connect in and you're not um, you're not a jerk, uh, <laughs> you you tend to get you know introduced to a lot of different people, and that's pretty cool. I like the I like the tight knit flavor of the community. I guess you could say it's uh, it's been pretty neat to see because I don't see that a lot in my own profession. Um, it's not like we throw rocks at each other or anything, but but we we just don't have the same camaraderie, and maybe that's forged through, you know, being under attack for for so many years. Um, tell us tell us a little bit about yourself too. You're in Connecticut, um, but for some reason you were the first girl to ride a, a bronc bareback in the Jackson Hole, Wyoming uh, rodeo, and like what was it, 1929? You said. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. So um, let's see, uh, not an army brat, but I've moved around a lot as a person. Uh, when I was six years old, I lived in England. Uh, my dad divorced my mom when I was like three, and he was the one living out in Jackson. And so we were in Jackson, Wyoming, and 
it was just one of those things. What else should a 19 year old kid do, but be the first girl to ride a bareback bronc in the rodeo and really piss off a bunch of cowboys. So that's how that kind of happened. It was just, I was out there for the summer working at Albertson's bakery and uh, it seemed like a fun thing to do. Cause I was friends with the rodeo clown and my boyfriend at the time actually was a bareback bronc rider. And so I borrowed his rig. He helped me jump over a couple ditches. And next thing you know, I'm uh, Saturday night news. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So you're, you're still shattering barriers, which is pretty cool because the DC project is all women, correct? As I understand. Yeah. It. We have wonderful men that support us, mm-hmm. but ideally our, we are the face. We're trying to be the face for gun owners because, you know, I'm a mom. I've got two kids. My kids were five and six when Sandy Hook happened. It was a horrible, horrible day for us parents. And to have these women in red shirts come out and say that I'm a baby killer because I own a gun is a little bit challenging. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a real, it's a real boots on the ground, like organization. You, you show up, you knock on the doors, you get the meetings, um, you have the discussions. Sometimes the discussions go nowhere and you know that going into it. Um, what, what do you think the most important thing for people to know about the DC project is, right? Like there are some people that probably are like, I've never even heard of it, right? Uh, we have listeners that haven't heard of it, but what, what, what do you, what do you really do besides what I just said, obviously? Yeah. So DC project is like any other group. We always want new members. I think it's really important that people understand that gun regulations really are gun bans in some form or another. I think that was one of the things I didn't used to understand prior to becoming a competitive shooter. I was definitely of the mindset that, well, if I have a 10 round bag ban, the gun owner still has bullets in their gun. Therefore it's not really a gun ban. But now that I know more, I realize that, oh, you can't have every gun with a 10 round bag ban because they don't just come that way. So I think getting educated and understanding that education, not legislation, is important, understanding that mental health is a big portion of preventing violence in general, not just gun violence, and knowing that your voice does matter. I think that's one of the things that a lot of the silent majority of gun owners kind of sit back and don't know how to get involved. So I think, you know, go to dcproject.info and join and get updated of what's going on in your state. Because I know a lot of people pay attention to federal stuff, but your state is what matters. Because actually right now here in Connecticut, one of the laws that passed in 2019, Ethan's law, is now being pushed up to the federal level, which is a safe storage law. Which safe storage always sounds warm and fuzzy, but there's already a single mom who's lost her right to have firearms because her apartment was broken into And when the cops came to investigate the crime that had happened to her, she became a felon because no one had educated her about Ethan's law. And because she had an empty firearm in her apartment, she became a felon and lost her ability to have a firearm. That's unbelievable. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand the impact of what some of these laws are. It sounds like you're trying to save lives and be altruistic. But on the other end of it, when I was actually testifying against Ethan's law, I said, this is very punitive. There is no prevention in this law. And so that's, that's what I say is get involved and learn more because only through education can people understand how to really help others. Yeah. You, you mentioned something real critical in there is the education, not legislation. And that's something that we're trying to do with WTTA is we want to 
we want to just teach, right? We want to inform and, and information is power. It's empowering. Uh, and out of that, you can get action, not just activism, which is usually just somebody's opinion screaming on the street, which usually doesn't have an effect. Um, there's some debate to be had over whether or not protests work, but rather than split those hairs, it's more effective. We know when we just teach people stuff because then they go, Oh, now I'm not in the dark anymore. Now I I'm poised to act. Um, but you're in there opposing legislation. So help help us reconcile this positioning where you say, well, all we want to do is teach. We don't want to get involved in the politics and the policymaking. But then ugly policies come down and they're unappealing, unpalatable, unexecutable, um, can cause more harm than they do benefit in some cases. And somebody has to speak up, right? So at some point you got to move. So how, how do we how do we know what to to do and when to do it while still adhering to the we're not really getting into the fray idea, right? So uh, yeah, it's so hard. Um, unfortunately, as we all know, what happens? Someone gets shot, and now someone wants to do something. And I'm all for doing something. I just want to do something that actually matters and makes a difference. I mentioned Sandy Hook because I'm in Connecticut. I'm all of 20 minutes away from there. I can drive there. I actually was driving through that day and I didn't even know what was going on that day. It's one of those things gives you goosebumps, but I'm all about as a taxpayer, if my government's going to do something for me, I actually want it to be proven and statistically shown to give results. And so Sandy Hook helped me become that person because after crying for two weeks straight, because my kids were that small, I am like, how do we actually stop violence? And so I looked and I'm like, oh, look, Columbine shooting. There's 10 years of research on how to prevent stuff like that. And nobody brings that to our politicians because I'm definitely of the mindset of, I don't want to say just don't give us laws. I want to be like, here are some solutions that actually have been proven to work and let's try to implement some of these things. So that's what talking to our politicians to me is about, is giving them alternatives that actually have impact versus things that all they do is they're a sound bite that someone thinks sounds good, but they're not thinking about the long-term effects of that single mom in the apartment who was a victim of a crime who is now a felon. I don't know, which, Brooke, that sounds really like too much like hard work. I don't know if mm. I'm up for it. It's easier just to like ram some legislation through and stick a bullet on my uh, mailer next election cycle to tell everybody what I did, right? I'm being facetious, obviously, but how how, how hard is it to recruit people that way of thinking? I mean, we had we had Laura on here from uh, Liberal Gun Club, and she's talking about root cause mitigation, and it's like, yeah, nobody nobody does this because it's hard. So how do you how do you how do you recruit people to the effort when you're like, hey, you're signing up for something that's really really challenging? Uh, well, you get to decide what's actually important is saving lives for real and making a difference in other people's lives really worth the effort or not, mm. because it's easy to give lip surface to, oh, they passed these laws. Um, I have Murphy and Blumenthal as my senators and I've talked to Mr. Murphy and he and I have agreed to disagree, but when you want to really get down to it is one of the advantages of going to the Capitol until this year, because COVID, it's closed, everything is Zoom, but I would talk to anti-gun people and they just don't know. And that's why the education portion of it is really quite important because they're like, 
doesn't a 10 round mag ban reduce crime? I'm like, nope. In all the states that have had 10 round mag bans, there's been no reduction in crime. And it's been proven time and time again, but they got to do something. So the good news is there's plenty of anti-gunners who through education have actually become on our side and really do want to make a difference. So that's why the educate not legislate thing is. And we all have our wheelhouse, right? For me, it's going to the stats, what the FBI, the DOJ, Department of Education, what they've thrown out there. When people have questions on that in a DC project, that's what I give them. Then we've got people like Laura, who's like, okay, how do we talk to liberals? How do we make it not sound like we're attacking anyone? How do we, you know, make that easier for them to understand in bite-sized stuff that, no, you don't have to be a Republican to support firearms. You really don't. You do kind of want to have an idea of how to talk to people, though. How much, because um, because you're not just a gun, a gun rights advocate, you you also do a suicide uh you call it suicide Saturdays or you dress right it, it, yeah. on Facebook live. And it's something you've done since 2018. Um, there is this stereotype when it comes to firearms owners uh, from people that don't understand the culture is that like, we don't care. All we care about is our second amendment, right? Probably from my cold dead hands. Um, and what I found, especially with walk talk America is, is people are blown away sometimes by the fact um, and I like to call it a socially conscious 2A, um, that we care, right? Like the perception is that we don't, but here you are, right? That just started this this thing on Facebook Live and then it got wheels, right? And and it was became this weekly thing. And now it's now it's here to stay and you and you do it every week and you help people and you you hit a taboo subject that maybe like five years ago we didn't want to because it could be used against us. It could be weaponized. Um, it's depressing, quite frankly, right? Like it's not an easy subject to talk about. Talk a little bit about, about that and how you've used that when you do go talk to politicians. Um, all right. So yeah, Suicide Prevention Saturday. I actually looked back on my Facebook thing and I started October of 2018. And I had no idea if I was going to talk about it again, but it was just something that I had been suicidal as a teen and I finally went to counseling around 19 or 20 and I was in group counseling. And one of the gentlemen who I was with in, in counseling with, his insurance ran out. It was the end of the year, it was December, two weeks before Christmas. That January, I went to his funeral and I talked to his family and I said, listen, sorry, he loved you more than anything. And he wanted to fight and he wanted to stay alive for you, but he needed the support and his insurance company cut him off and he couldn't do it on his own. And going to suicidal funerals is one of the challenges or blessings that I have because I can, because I've been in counseling with some of these people. And so in the gun community, in the veterans community, there are way more suicides than anyone would like to admit. And for me, because I can look at it at least from one point of view, I was sexually abused as a kid. I had drug and alcohol in my family. I had lots of reasons to be suicidal apparently, but it was my normal. And that's all that I knew that I thought I was worthless, a piece of garbage, that I wasn't worth the air I was breathing, all that fun stuff. And people are like, what? How could you ever think that about you? 
And unfortunately, most people, luckily, actually, not unfortunately, luckily, most people don't know what that feels like. And they can't imagine doing something like that, or feeling that way. So here I am now I'm in my 50s. And I started this in my 40s. And it's just, if those of us who have survived the trauma, and the distress aren't willing to talk about it, why would anyone ask? So I decided I would talk about it because it's cathartic to let people know they're not alone. Because I think that day that I got checked in the hospital um, was the most amazing day of my life in that for once I knew I was taking care of me first and I didn't have to worry about my husband, my mom, anybody, my dad, it was just about me. And people are so afraid of getting the counseling. People are so afraid of talking to anyone about it because they feel they're broken, there's something wrong, something along those lines. So Suicide Prevention Saturday started because I went to group therapy back in 1989 or so, I would say. And it's just, it's something people need to talk about. And it's been a blessing. I've helped some people. I'm not a clinician in any way, shape or form. I've just been in counseling, (laughs) so. And Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins helps too. Yeah, there's so much that you just shared right there that is, I mean, we could make the rest of the show on just that. Um, And I do want to spend as much time as necessary to pull it apart because there's some deep, significant messaging that needs to be communicated. The first thing I'm going to go to very selfishly is that my profession, counseling as a whole, has created much of the sustained stigma that we experience. And here's what I mean by that. Stigma was already around from uh, movies and media from the olden days about you know getting uh, psychiatric help. Uh, that and the fact that mental illness, because you can't see it, is in and of itself a little mysterious and, and spooky. So already we're, we're starting off badly. But what we get taught in schools and it's done under the auspices of confidentiality and protecting patient rights and all that stuff, is that we are not to hold ourselves out, talk to our clients in public, reference our patients' uh, testimonials, like all the stuff that you see in every other business and industry across America, including healthcare. Not us. We don't do that. We don't go on social media. We don't engage with the public. We don't, we, we just, just don't, 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 don't. Uh, because you might inadvertently break somebody's confidentiality. Well, what message does that send? It's a, the message is you're not worthy of your having your story told, right? You're supposed to hide it when you're sick. And so much so that even your clinician will hide it. It's like, holy cow, is that bad messaging? So we've been a product of, the, of, the, or of this perpetration of, uh, of stigmatization in the profession. It pushes people away. Then I, I heard in your story this this tale of just completely not understandable self shame, right? Living in a place of so such low self efficacy that you want to die, and that's not news to me because I hear it all the time. This is what I do for a living. Um, but I really appreciate that you said that it's fortunate that most people can't conceptualize that. That's awesome because it means that most people are living healthy, happy lives and they're raised in conditions that aren't abusive and neglectful and whatnot. But if you're one of those and you're listening to this, there's hope and there's recovery and redemption possible. And that's really, really super cool. We like rehabilitating people. 
We like giving second chances, third, fourth. America loves a redemption story. And then <laughs> we have the issue of, I heard you say you, you, you were checked into a hospital. That's a pretty high level of care, right? Um, it's really good that you focus on yourself for that period of time. That's awesome. That's what we want. And then I couldn't help but have my ears think. I don't know if my ears think, but <laughs> my brain thought after my ears heard. Uh, uh-oh, her gun rights are in jeopardy. <laughs> because that's the messaging that's sent also is, thou shalt not be crazy ever, even if you can be redeemed, even if you can be rehabilitated. And in some cases, we'll even use legal intervention. So now it's illegal to be sick, right? With red flag laws and involuntary psych holds and all that stuff. So all collectively, the messaging is don't be sick. And if you get sick, don't tell anybody. Uh, and if you do, will be it to you because you're going to be judged, blackballed, have your rights taken away. Our job now is to push back on that. And the last thing I want to touch on is that you were courageous enough to share your story in a mature way, right? Not just because you don't know how else to handle it and you're just going to go like screaming from the rooftops about how you're wounded. We want to do it in a mature way, a purposeful, intentional way for the catharsis, for the interconnectivity, for the validation of all the other people who are suffering. And, and I think that's so beautiful. And that, I think, should be everybody's mission. If you're listening to this podcast, share it. First of all, share it with a friend. Take Brooke's story and empower others to do the same because all that negative messaging that I just shared, that's the fight. You can, you can point at legislators and you can point at professionals who don't conduct themselves well and you can point at industries and all this stuff. But really, it's collectively the way you combat that is you do the exact opposite. You do go out. You do get bold. You promote. You publicize. You have compassion. You connect with others. You don't wall it off and, and you know self-isolate. So I, I just think that's amazing and I would love to explore more of any of that stuff because – this is this is the first time we've really delved into this aspect of uh, mental health care and personal redemption story on this show. I mean, it's it's great. I love that you just you just laid it all out there in one soliloquy. Yeah, fighting in the open. I I have a question for you. Um, has 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 that ever been used against you? Fight, like fighting in the open, where you you know, because you're you're an instructor. You know what I mean? Like, have you ever seen it weaponized against you or had someone say, Hey, Brooke, are you okay? Like, you know, that condescending. Well, uh, this is the first time I told that entire story. So it'll be your fault if I do. <laughs> Brooke just lost her job. <laughs> Good thing I'm self-employed. <laughs> there you go. Tough to fire yourself. Um, no, I, I mean, at least... Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I am in politics. I am in the gun world. I have shared my story openly, mainly because it's hard. It's like there's a lot of darkness and it is cathartic telling the story. Um, and it's like there, there's trying for me emotionally and mentally, it's always trying to find that balance. Because when I say I was abused as a child sexually, people are like, oh, poor Brooke. And you get that. But it's just like, yeah, but I'm only one of millions. I am not special, unfortunately. And so it, it's one of those things where people don't think it's in their backyard. I'm like, yeah, it's your neighbors. It's your, it's your brothers. It's your sisters. It's your cousins. Because anyone I've told the story to, like, oh, and I hate to use it because they hashtag it to death, but me too. And so I don't think it's important for me to hide it. 
Um, like I said, it's 1989, 1990, something along those lines is when I was um, hospitalized for that, you know, that 72 hour hold. But it was just the first time in my life that A, anyone had ever told me that it was bad to have a plan on how to kill myself. It was my normal. And nobody had told me that Mm. there was anything wrong with that being my normal until I went to, um, in our area, Susan B. Anthony um, is the nonprofit. Any battered women, et cetera, that's where you go for free counseling when you're young and don't have any money. And so I had this conversation with someone else about their normals. I'm like, a lot of kids' normals is get up, go to school, come home, have dinner, go to bed. And my normal was that, except for sometimes when I went to bed, I would have a visitor. And it was, you know, that was sort of the beginning of the darkness for me. And it's that whole thing where, um, and just sorry to expand on that, since I'm telling you all of this, is that we lived in a family with borders. There, it wasn't my, I was in a house with like eight other people. It wasn't just my family. So not to disparage my family. Uh, as to what happened there, but it's, it's amazing what your normal is. And I was talking with somebody else who said, that's not normal. I'm like, no, that's not your normal. There's a difference because people want everyone to have that pretty cookie cutter life that they had, if they had a blessed life that didn't have trauma in it. But for those of us growing up with alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual abuse, it's a different kind of normal. It's limiting too, right? So um, when all you're shown is um, the limits, that's the the belief, right? So if you're shown um, through childhood that your parents' jobs are X and Y, you you grew up thinking X and Y are all that's possible until somebody else comes along and offers it to you. So if you grow up in uh, violence and chaos, you just think eh, that's everybody's reality until somebody else tells you otherwise. And then the real hard part comes, which is acknowledging it and believing that something different is possible. And I'm curious because people tend to ask this question, how long did it take before you, uh, you complete the sentence, <laughs> you know, <laughs> before you were normal, well, before it- you were functioning before, you know what I mean? Yeah. So to tell you honest, God, truth, my life was both the most amazing fairy tale as well as somewhat of a nightmare. It's, it's wasn't either, or it's like, I actually had two very loving parents who taught me that anything is possible. Um, I just also had two loving, wonderful parents who had abuse issues, not physical, chemical. Um, my mom was drinking all the time. And uh, one night I sa- finally said to her, I'm like, mom, why do you only tell me that you love me when I am drunk? And by the way, I have permission to tell this story from her. And she says, well, Brooke, at least I'm not a mean drunk. I don't beat you every night. So she puts things in perspective (laughs) because she wasn't wrong. Uh, My father, I just thought he was moody most of the time because I didn't realize that he was self-medicating on lots of various things. So with that said, those are their flaws, right? But they were the most loving parents. They were uh, told me that the, the world was my oyster. My dad fought with the rodeo guys to allow me to be the first girl riding that bareback Bronx story. So it's like as much as everyone's like, oh, drug abuse, alcoholism, it's horrible. It's like, well, no, they're still good people. They still loved their child. They still took care of me because um, I don't want anyone to think 
poorly of my parents. They did the best they could with the tools they have. And to me, this is where counseling is so important because without counseling, we don't know how to fix our broken parts. And as to where my life turned around, it's always actually been really good and really bad all at the same time. So there wasn't a specific turning point other than that one day that I got checked into the hospital and I felt like I could breathe for the first time for a long time. It's a great story about dialectics, the both and, right? Because in a world like ours today, where everything is seemingly increasingly divisive and binary and people are retreating to their tribes, it's good to be mindful of the nuance and the complexities that accompany every human being so that we don't label people and quantify them and stick them in little boxes as though we know everything about them based on one outward per behavior. Those are a lot of big words. <laughs> Way past my age. That's why I love Jake. Now, I, I, I have a question Journalism for you. degree. <laughs> how, how, so firearms ownership, uh, the right to personal safety, to protect your family, uh, everything is very empowering. It's an empowering thing, right? Um, and 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 I think for the the well, we know the majority of people that own firearms use them in the right way. Um, I, I I was just on a call where I had to explain that I was one of the little companies, and I used to sell between you know fifty to eighty thousand firearms a year just to civilians. I had no law enforcement contracts or military. And I said, I'm a, I'm a, I was one of the tiny guys. Like, imagine what Ruger's doing and imagine what Southern West is doing. Um, you realize it's like swimming in the Pacific Ocean. You realize that you're swimming around a lot of sharks, right? Um, you are around firearms just naturally. Talk about, like, what got you into the firearms? What, what, like, how did you get into the whole scene? Uh, my kids. Uh, my dad, God bless him, Um he had guns around us all of our lives, but he never taught us anything about them to the extent of back in Jackson. One day he was away for the weekend and I'm like, I'm going to be a big girl and I'm going to go sleep in his room. And I woke up with a nice cold revolver against my cheek that morning. So safety was not something we knew. <laughs> um, however, in 2007, 2006 and seven, I had my first and second child and my husband and I had gotten our permits back when 1991 but I knew nothing and I knew I wanted to keep my kids safe and I knew I needed to know how to pick something up and not have it go bang. And that's where I started training. And this is where I really got welcomed into the gun world. My dad, my husband would pack me up, send me off to the range. The guys would catch me at the other end. They'd help me unpack and load and not hurt myself. And my wonder woman moment was probably 2010 when I could pack my bag all by myself and I knew what ammo went with what gun and I really felt empowered and this is where women's rights and gun rights to me really intersect and I think it's why I finally did become an instructor because I want so many women to have that Wonder Woman moment and for me it's not about self-defense it's, I'm a competitive shooter. I run around, but it was that Wonder Woman moment that I want to share with people. So did that answer your question, Mike? I might've lost that. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. It, it, you know, I'm just thinking about you, you, you're an educator, right? You teach people. Um, and then you have this suicide prevention Saturday and you see you help people. Um, 
Yeah, just it's it, it just interesting because it it it's things that are intersecting. You're at that you're at that spot. You're a perfect candidate. I mean, like to me, I think about you at the DC project. You're I think you're a perfect person to go walk in and and try to bridge gaps with people that may not understand. Um, yeah, I, I'm proud of you. That's that's an awesome story. Thanks. Yeah, I do try to be a bridge builder uh, because I was that person that in 2005. If you told me there was a 10 round mag ban, I'd be like, yeah, whatever, doesn't matter. And then I learned more again, educate, not legislate. I'm like, oh, that really is a gun ban. They're just not calling it a gun ban to not upset people. Yeah. You, when we first were introduced and you called me and, and if we were chatting, um, one of the things I love about about you from the short time I've known you is that I had mentioned something because you had said the word commit. Right. And we got on the subject to commit suicide. And, and that's one of the things that I always got whacked when I first got into this field is that I had a bunch of people in the mental health side saying, throw that word out, get, get rid of it. And I appreciated that. But then you did something you, in, instead of like fighting it or challenging it, you, you, you said, um, I get that language thing. We do it all the time. Like we don't want people calling magazines clips and you, you brought it back to guns and had the, and I never even thought about it that way. And it's funny, I've used that now twice, right? Like as an example from what, what you said, I thought that was, that was really awesome, but it also just shows that, you know, you, 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 you know, the reason why I said it too is because I just don't want you to ever run into what I did <laughs> beating yourself up. And I know Jake has an opinion on that, but I think, I think one of the topics that is important is language, right? And how we approach things and how we talk about things. And if we're going to bring two worlds together, um, it, it's, uh, it's up to us to, to try to understand where the other side's coming from. Yeah. And it's definitely where, like I said, people like me who I used to know nothing. And then I kind of dove in and started swimming. And it's interesting to have lots of different pools to pull from. It's like we were talking earlier about like, tell you about me. I'm like, well, the easiest way is jack of all, master of none. Um, you know, as a kid, I had five jobs, you know, working in a barn, shoveling horse manure, uh, working on a boat uh, dock, pumping gas for boats during the summer. My mom owned a restaurant. I was a dishwasher and, you know, would work, you know, seven shifts a day kind of thing. Uh, car salesman, limo driver, all of these things. And it's just like, I love all the different people that I've met. And because I've met so many diverse amounts of people, it makes it easier for me to understand and find those bridge building moments. Because if there's any way to be heard, that's it. And as an instructor, I always ask people, I'm like, hey, what's your job? What do you actually do? And I usually know enough, just enough, to maybe put it from their perspective, like, you know, psychology, for example, you know, or, or a gun person, it doesn't matter. There's always a way that we connect and we can find something. And that's what we need to focus on when we're trying to recruit to get people to do the work. It's a matter of what's important to you and how does that mean that your time should go to that and saving lives is very altruistic, but it sounds very hard and very difficult to do, which it is but many hands make for light work. What you just described there with regard to connecting with people, I think is really important. We had uh, Christian Conti on the show. He's a psychologist, uh, Pennsylvania. And um, 
he's got this thing called yield theory where it's it's a way of communicating with people without eliciting their defenses, right? And so you want to circumvent fight or flight reflex in order to be heard. And one of the ways that you can do that, you just illustrated so well, is that you can identify with people. It's very disarming when people start to see you as like them. Um, I teach a lot of emotional functioning. One of the 10 core emotions we have is contempt. Contempt is when you look at people as though they're not like you. And contempt is where hate springs from. It's where harm is caused usually from, you know, from a contemptuous perspective. And typically among humans, it's really hard to hurt somebody unless you think they're not like you. You know, you hurt people unintentionally, of course, but, but when you intentionally hurt somebody, it's usually because you can't see any similarities. And so when you connect with people, not only does it disarm them because they're like, oh, you're like me uh, in some little way, they also now are able to receive the message because they're no longer defensive limbically, like their their limbic system isn't running, and they're able to receive the information that you're about to offer. So it's a great way to build bridges. And I, I love that you say that because I think sometimes we forget how much we do have in common with one another because we're so inundated with how much difference there is. Um, not to mention the messaging about you know deficits-based approach, which is like focus on all the bad and then build them up rather than strengths-based, which is focus on what you have and shore that up and build from there, right? Um, it's just it's just a different way of thinking. I think it's super effective. Um, I'm curious because you you mentioned in your your bio that you ran for office a couple of times, uh, uh, local uh, county commissioners, zoning yeah, board, something I, like I, that. I was um, so uh, at some point the gun people said you need to get involved in your political world, <laughs> and I was told to go join the RTC. And that was like 2011 or so. And I'm like, I don't even know what RTC stands for. Here, so it around here, for, it's Regional Transportation Commission, but I don't Yeah. Know. So here it's your Republican Town Committee. So I made a couple of phone calls and I joined and they had openings in local election. And one of them was Zoning Commission. And at the time I had gone through zoning in order to get my school up and running. And so I'd learned about zoning at least a little bit as to what we needed to do. So I volunteered to run for zoning board. And this is one of the things I didn't know before either is that so many of these positions at the local level are just volunteers. It's not like I had to pass a test to become a public official, (laughs) (laughs) which is scary and enlightening all at the same time. Sometimes the the test is just a popularity contest. Well, and that's just it. It is. And it's like our, our we have a little cute Republican town here in the northwest corner of Connecticut. And um, so, yeah, so I did two terms as zoning board uh, alternate. Uh, so uneducated on my part that I didn't know. I thought as alternate, they didn't actually need me to show up, but apparently they did. So I missed a couple meetings when I first started. Uh, then I just resigned from being the Republican town committee chairwoman for a couple terms. I don't even know because life kind of gets blurry. It's been a week. It's been a year. It's been five years. I'm not really entirely sure, but um, it's been a few years. And so I know what it's like to run campaigns, be part of a campaign, fundraising, messaging, all those fun things at the local level. And for me back to, you know, not caring about 10 round mag band back in 2005, up until 2010, I was such a low information voter that there was one election every four years for president. I didn't know we had senators and congressmen. I didn't know that 
there was local senators and Republicans or uh, representatives. And I didn't know that we elected people at the town level. Like that's how clueless I was. And so I went from that to this past election, knowing every single person that I voted for, except for Trump and Pence, and they knew my name. So that journey also allows me a different perspective to reach out to folks. Cause like there's other people I know, I'm sure that you do that they've been in politics all their life. How can you not know anything? I'm like, right. Oh no, it's easy to be ignorant. I, I guess my, my curiosity was um, with the division that we see now um, and I'll frame this real briefly. I, I, I had a, a very short lived uh, run for office uh, just a year and a half ago. Um, and I, uh, less than that, 13 months ago. And I pulled the plug before I even filed <clears throat> because it was ugly and unpleasant. And I didn't like it. And I was going to have to compromise a lot of things. And I'm wondering, I'm, I'm, I'm never, never a day goes by when I'm not grateful that I made that decision, by the way. Um, and I'm wondering if you would still be able to do that now with the polarization, but given your skill set, do you think you could pull people together in consensus? Or are we too far so, afield and everybody's just encamped in their, you know, whatever's. So I, I, I was actually just talking with a friend of mine this morning about this is that my whole thing is to refocus on what we have in common. And the job that I was doing in zoning board is about regulations. It's not about getting people to work together necessarily because regulations are regulations. So it's easy. I did talk to someone about running for Congress and they said, no, just build DC project. So that's where I'm going to be using my bridge building skills. Because I think like one of the, one of my, my secret weapons when I would go to the Capitol in the past is I would never wear anything gun related. I would just look like a regular mom. And I would hang out with the MDA folks. And I would hang out with the moms who didn't know whether I was a gun person or not. And I would listen to them and we'd chat over lunch. And then all of a sudden someone would say, oh, Brooke, what do you do? Like, oh, I'm a firearms instructor. And then you would see the ones that their face would turn green. The needle slides off the record. <laughs> and they had to go away. But then there were the people who were genuinely there to help make a difference and were curious. And that's why I show up all the time. Now, I can tell you my secret because now I can't do that anymore because as a DC Project state leader, I have to go in my shirt <laughs> and I have to be in uniform. But I just... Think people jump to too many conclusions. Are there reasons for stereotypes? Absolutely. Do they ever tell the whole story? Heck no. So, uh, how does the process work? I, th I, th I think there's probably a lot of people that are curious about the actual like putting in motion that the DC project does. Um, it's not like 50 girls just banging on a <laughs> on a door, right? Yeah, um, my experience is that gun owners are way more polite than the anti-gun owners that I've seen personally in Connecticut, in Hartford. Uh, we had, a, uh, we had a, a rally day basically at the Capitol and our Capitol, or sorry, our legislative building. And then it's like five stories and it's a big open area. And we had hundreds, probably thousands of people in the building just waiting to talk to their, their representatives and stuff. And we were polite. 
We didn't barge through anyone's doors. We didn't have cameras holding over our shoulders. We did not demand anything. We just kind of showed up and said, hey, we are here. We are your brothers, your sisters, your fathers, your kids. And we want to have a voice. And then the next day was the Mothers Demand Action, the Sandy Hook Promise people. And there was no one in the building. There was a group of about eight women who had a cameraman with them. And they were the one barging into and being rude and just insisting on things. So... If you'd like to join something like the DC Project, the way we go about things is A, you go to dcproject.info and say, yes, I'd like to do something. And then whatever state you are in, that state director will get in touch with you and tell you what's going on. One of the things I've learned from being a part of the DC Project, because it started out nationally and we've just started to go statewide, is how different every state actually is. Um, Some states have a legislative session all the time. Some states only have a legislative session every other year. Some states have short ones and long ones and all of that. So it's unique to your state how it works, but the overall how to pay attention to and look to, the easiest thing is to get into involved in a local state government watchdog group. In Connecticut, we have what's called CCDL, the Connecticut Citizens Defense League. And all you have to do is go to Google and say gun rights in my state and you will find a way to get plugged in because those are usually the best ways to find out what's going on in your state because it's so unique. Does DC Project not do state level? They're only federal? No, we just started doing state level in 2019. I was actually at training in March, the weekend that Disney World finally shut down. And this is what we just started our our, um, our state level outreach and chapters. And I'm oh, sorry, 2020, not, not 2019. We talked about 2019. We actually all became state leaders in 2020. And so we've just started our state level groups. So when you go to the national page, they will send you out to the state leaders. I'm just saying right now, because we're still in the growth phase, we're absolutely piggybacking on the existing state level Uh, organizations that already have their stuff together because I love going to ccdl.us and getting, okay, what's the the hot buttons on the legislation that's coming up because I'm a person, I'm a team of one right now. So, um, and yeah, so that's kind of it. We are at the state level, but we've just begun at the state level. It's a volunteer position that you hold, right? These are all volunteer stuff. Oh yeah. Grassroots organization. Yeah. It's yeah. I, I, I don't know that I'd want to get paid for this because I'd feel like if I had to get paid for it, that I'd have to follow rules. And because I'm not getting paid for it, I'm just doing what I think is right in my heart. And no one can ever accuse me of being a sellout or a buyout because I just think it's important to get the message out that education is absolutely the way to save lives and not legislation. Was there anything that ever surprised you about how a politician acted or reacted, you know, whether it was positive, negative, like, you know, as the general public, we we kind of imagine the politician that is left to center to be like this get out of here. Guns are bad. Right. And and there's a lot of nuance when you're having these discussions, I assume. And um, is, is there any story that you have that, you kind of were like, yeah, that was, that was that went better than I thought, or maybe it did go bad. I don't know. 
Well, I don't know if I want to talk about it just from like the gun perspective, because it's my mother-in-law who actually introduced me to politics as far as they're just people and they get held to these ridiculous standards. And uh, it was Blumenthal who helped get my nephew home from Iraq when there were family problems, when his grandfather was dying, stuff like that. And yet you say the word Blumenthal and everybody in the fire industry firearms are just like oh that piece of garbage and it's like I understand but he's still just a guy he's doing a job and you're not going to like the job anyone does 100% so back to the the bridge building portion when we went when we're in DC and we went to see Murphy you know his whole office is just covered in you know Sandy Hook green and it's kind of a little bit distressing walking in there quite honestly but he and I and Holly Sullivan were like we're going to agree to disagree on things, but he was cordial. He was polite, that sort of thing. Blumenthal won't give us the time of day. So I don't get a horrible reaction from any of the politicians that I've met, but, and Jake maybe back me up on this, but I find that most of us project what we expect. Yeah. And so if we go in thinking they're going to be dicks, they're going to be that. And then some. Well, and we get our expectations. And it's not helped any by social media caricaturization, too. You know, any media. Um, we're back to the labeling, right? You slap a label on somebody, and they become that and only that. And then it's really hard to get somebody out of a label and acknowledge that there's more. Uh, a personal anecdote, I, I didn't study up at all on the presidential campaign last year because the everything was a mess and I was overrun with work and all sorts of things. But uh, the only thing I heard about Andrew Yang was he wanted a thousand dollar a month, universal basic income. And I was like, that sounds like socialism. (laughs) And, and, and that's what he became in my head. Well, just yesterday I listened to, he's got a podcast now called Yang speaks. And, um, on his podcast was one of my favorite, uh, researchers, professors named, uh, Jonathan Haidt, H I H A I D T. If you want to look him up, he's a social psychologist, and um, their conversation was, I mean, scintillating for sure. I mean, brilliant, brilliant people. But I listening to Andrew Yang explain in great detail the intentionality behind his policy initiatives and how they're all based in data and actually cover both sides of the aisle with great reason. Like, you know, hey, so social social conservatives could benefit from a $1,000 a month universal basic income because most social conservatives like having the wife at home raising the kids and there's an intrinsic value in there that's not valued in the marketplace. Let's pay them for it. I was like, that's brilliant. Like, absolutely yeah. brilliant. So I had a brand new appreciation for this man who I never took the time to investigate anyway because I knew he didn't have a snowball's chance in the primary and it didn't really matter and I had bigger things to, to worry about. But that's that's a caricaturization of a human being who ran a big company, who is you know very accomplished. And what we what did I do? I boiled him down to he's the thousand dollar a month guy. You know, it's like what a terrible terrible thing to do. And here I am, the dude who's supposed to be non judgmental, right? And like seeing through people's outward behaviors and to the inner soul of the human being. I mean, how many times do we just not give people a chance because we hear one snippet of information, we find it disagreeable, and then we we classify everything they do through that lens. It's, that's awful. I, I certainly don't want to be judged by my, you know, one or two things that I represent. I wear many, many hats and I've certainly made many mistakes and embarrassed myself enough times. <laughs> I certainly hope nobody would do that to me. What am I doing, doing it to somebody else? You know? Well, it's hard because that's how we're wired, right? It's easy. 
I, I mean, Just, it's in my, easy. what you're talking about as far as like stories, if anything, I, I want to say that my experience with reaching across the aisle has been actually really pretty good. It's like I have Democrats come up to me and say, you know, thank you for not glaring at us during the entire thing. And thank you for not wearing camo. And thank you for, you know, not just being belligerent about the Second Amendment. And it's just, and it's, it's one of those things where for me, if anything, I'm like, give them a chance. It's like, they really don't know. I mean, I think the most important thing as far as bringing politicians back to you and our, our level is remember they are just you and I, they don't know everything. And the thing my mother-in-law taught me was, if you call them and talk to them, they'll listen. Do, will they agree with you? No, but they'll listen and that you've given them something because just like I told you, 2005, uh, there was one presidential election every four years. I never voted because I didn't know anything about any of them versus this past one where I knew everybody. But people are really stuck right now. The, the stereotypical stuff. I, I, I'm a Trump supporter. I was just like I was a Ross Perot supporter because that was the only other one because I'm like, I want to see what a businessman in Washington, D.C. would do. And I have people saying, I can't be friends with you because of that. I'm like, all right, I'm not going to toot my own horn, but I don't think I'm a horrible person because of one thing you don't like about me. Right. And unfortunately, that's what I see in our society right now is we're doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah it I can totally relate to what you say because I, you know, when I got into this, I didn't know how I was going to be treated by the mental health community or when I would come across people that had opposing views. I knew I could handle their opposing view. I didn't know if they could handle mine. Right. And um, I still I, find I, you intolerable, by the way. <laughs> At least he's honest. Yeah, I know. That's why I love him. Now, uh, so it's, uh, it's, you know, all right. So let me ask you this. Sometimes uh, our community can be pretty abrasive, right? Um, and I've said all along that it's a love-hate relationship that I have with the pride from my cold dead hands guy, right? Because there's a part of me that says he is a value to me because when he's acting like that or she's acting like that, People go, I can't talk to that person. I can talk to you though, Mike. Like, let's sit down, right? And I get that opportunity. Um, have you ever been in a situation though with anybody? I mean, I don't want you, to, well, I mean, maybe you want to throw people under the bus, but have you ever been in a situation where you're like, we cannot have that person go talk to this politician because I know this politician and I know how they'll react and that person can't rein it in, right? So I'm going to say no because I believe in freedom of speech. Are there people that I wish wouldn't show up at the testimony? Sure, there are. Um, but at the same time, there's a whole reason for that side to be shown. Because just like I think extremism is never good on any topic. It's the all or nothing thing, people are always losing. I definitely believe in the 80-20 rule. You know, you and I aren't going to agree on everything, but I bet you we could probably agree on almost 80%. But there was a couple years ago, there was a dude who came in and he was holding up a sign and it was rapists love gun control because criminals like gun control. And his point is valid. Do I think he made a great impression? He made an impression on people without a doubt, but I'm not sure 
but but some people wouldn't ever think of that if they hadn't seen his sign. Whereas as someone who's been attacked by sexual predators, they do like the weak. They do love gun control. It's true. Criminals really love the gun control thing. I've had friends who are in prison and they love gun control. They really do because where there are high carry rates per capita, there are low crime rates because the criminals are smart enough to know to if they've got a 50-50 shot that I'm armed, they're probably not going to try anything. So the shock factor is there. You, do you want to hang out with that person? Not necessarily. But at the same time, you don't know what they're giving to someone that actually may change their mind or make them think about something else. Speech is really important. I'm glad you highlighted that because it's one of the scarier things that we have is the ability to speak and not be fettered. Um, but liberty is dangerous. Freedom is dangerous because it's uncontrollable. If you want safety, control everything. Now, the problem is you can't control the will of a human being. And, you know, unless you lock everybody in a cage or whatever. Uh, Someone still has the keys. You're always... Yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, you're always going to run a risk of somebody doing something that you don't want. And um, and you could be a capital U or it could be y'all. <laughs> um, so what do we do? We, we try to teach. We try to teach things like we would teach children. Hey, here's your choice. You can choose these things. There are potentially bad outcomes if you choose some of them and potentially good outcomes if you choose others. And then at least people are informed and they're not they're not reflexively reacting to the to the environment. And sometimes that environment is control, right? If the environment is control and people don't like being controlled, well, guess what you got now? You don't have compliance. Um, and, and I think this, you know, society's learned that enough times now over history that we wouldn't be doing it anymore. But here we are following in the footsteps of failed policies. All right. So I got a question for both of you. Do you guys both drive a car? I, um, I, I have been known to drive a car. Yeah. Okay. Yes, me too. Yeah. All right. I, I got, done. I'm tired of Fred Flintstone in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if Jake in Antarctica just drives snowmobiles or not. So there's that. I fly. fly. I, have a, I have a hovercraft. Okay. Glides right, right over the snow. For those of you who so don't understand that inside joke, by the way, you, you didn't listen to the pre-show. Sorry. <laughs> it's inside joke for a reason. So, um, so yeah. So here's the deal. If I take a can of yellow paint and I paint my house, I've changed the color of my house, right? If I take that same can of yellow paint and I draw lines down a road, what is the impact of that color of paint? It's that paint either is something that beautifies my house or it controls you because you know not to go over the yellow line. And as far as education goes, this is where my brain goes, is that people are afraid of guns because other people are, do bad things with guns. And people are not afraid of paint, but yet it's a controlling factor as well. And it's just one of those things where I'm not making the point really well, but I was thinking about it today. It's just like, all it is is paint, but it keeps you going to the right side of the road unless you're in Europe then it's the left but my point is simply Correct this is, it's a control thing and people are afraid so they want to control stuff 
and we're controlled and we trust people all the time just because of that strip of paint. I think it's a good analogy because paint can also be used nefariously too, right? To, to vandalize and, um, and it can spill and it can make messes and some of it's permanent and some of it's, it washes out. And so I think it's a good analogy. And I think I'll take it one step further, which is that, um, it's a, it's a tool, right? And depending on how it's presented, it can incite a different belief system about what it means and what the significance is. So if we want to control firearms, for example, okay, show me some evidence because we control driving with the paint, but we have evidence that says that it works. We don't have any evidence that says that gun control actually works to the degree that we, we want it to. And then I can bring it all the way back around because why does the paint work? Oh, because when we get our driver's license, we're educated on what the paint means. Yeah. And, and unfortunately the, the, uh, the analogy sort of falls apart there because driving is a privilege and guns are a right. And yeah. that's a distinction made. But we're in not talking country. about driving. We're talking about no. paint. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But we know what the paint means, right? Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's the education thing. It's laws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a driver, you see the speed limit. It is X, mm-hmm. but then you drive for miles. Like, especially if you're like in Texas or somewhere. And you do not see a speed limit sign anywhere. And you have no idea if you are Schrodinger's cat or not. Are you speeding? Are you not speeding? Um, And if there's not a cop around, it doesn't matter. And that's the other thing that gets lost on the gun control folks is like, there's already over 20,000 rules and regulations around firearms. And most of them are unenforceable, sort of like Ethan's law, only is enforceable after something bad has occurred. So the education portion of it, let's stop making new laws. Let's figure out which ones actually work, if there are ones that are working, and enforce those. I have a question because I think this is, you know, I know we keep jumping back between gun rights, DC Project, and, and, you know, Suicide Awareness uh, Saturdays. But you have to, because I know some of the stuff that keeps me going is the, the messages that I get, right? They're anecdotal stories, mm-hmm. um, but it, it just, there's something addictive about helping people or reaching people, even when your intention is just to have a discussion and it really hits home with someone. It, it can be like a drug. I tell people that all the time. Um, what is your, your most favorite success story with this show that you do every every week, you have to. I know you do because you've been doing it too long. Larry, she's to lighting to up too. She's she's she knows. Absolutely, yeah. So, oh, probably 2019 August, I got a Facebook message from a gentleman, and he said, "In your 15 minute spot, you gave me more to think about." than my counselors, my three different counselors had for the past three years. And that kind of blew me away without a doubt. Um, And I asked him whether or not I could share that with people or not. And he said, sure. And see, I'm not a clinician, so Jake, I can. (laughs) Um, And so from there, uh, and Michael, I think I talked to you about this too, is this past Christmas, Christmas Eve, I get a phone call. And 
my friend's neighbor just committed suicide and she wanted me to help her figure out how to help the family. And I was touched that I was, had the opportunity to help them with that. And my suggestion to them was write all the good stories, write all the reasons you're going to miss them, but write all the fun stories and give it to the person who's grieving the most. And she got back to me later in the month and she's like, the family loved that. That was so great. Thank you so much for that idea. And that's giving me goosebumps as I'm telling you. So yeah. I'm starting to tear are... up. That was, that's <laughs> really good. So, um, cause yeah, funerals. I, the best part of funerals is telling the stories. I mean, there wasn't a story at my dad's funeral that didn't involve dynamite, fast cars or sharp things. <laughs> that reminds me of, uh, I can't remember what Johnny Depp movie it was, um, where she's like, tell me something about yourself. And he's like, I like whiskey, baseball, <laughs> I like dynamite, fast cars. <laughs> oh, yeah. So the stories are the best. And it's why we miss and why we grieve is because we're not going to have any more stories. So, yeah. Have you ever had any any resistance uh, from the show? Have you ever had anybody say, what are you doing? Like this, this isn't something we talk about in the community or you can get your rights taken away real fast. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's, I've never actually had any, anyone detract for the suicide prevention Saturday. Uh, the only time people have said anything bad about me was in politics. They're like, oh, she's such a bitch. I'm like, they don't even know me, but that's, that's politics, right? Cause someone said that I did something, but as far as suicide prevention stuff, I've not ever had anybody say, shut up, you're a gun owner. What are you talking about this for? Again, to me, it's like the sexual assault thing where it's like, the more you talk about it, the more people find out they're not alone. And, or like over the holidays, um, people reach out and say, oh yeah, this happened, but we didn't know how to deal with it. So yeah, I have never gotten any negative feedback talking about suicide. If anything, people don't know how, so they're like, I can't do anything. Do you do you implement any of that in the training portion uh, of your your class? Yeah. So NSSF has a program, and it's uh, called Have a Brave Conversation. So when people come here through my pistol permit classes, they always get a package that has that in there because there's two things that NSSF offers is the have a brave conversation. And then after a suicide, which are probably the two most common questions that I get when people talk to me is sometimes it's how do you prevent it? Or how do you see the signs? And then the other part is how, what do we do now that it happened? So that is something that NSSF put together that I put in all my packages. And for anyone who's an NSF, SF member, they send that to you uh, for free. All you have to do is request it. And it's a retail store uh, program that they have. Yeah, I'm a I'm a huge NSSF fan. As a matter of fact, I was just on a call with uh, Bill Broussard from the NSSF. And we were talking about how, you know, we're on this call with all different walks of life um, and different organizations. Um you know, trying to, trying to work towards something, but it was really interesting because um, I didn't realize that his, um, you know, the, the, the organization hadn't really touched on the suicide prevention piece, except for like the last three years, right? Like that's when they started. 
it's almost like the same time walk to talk America started, <laughs> um, which, you know, I think they have a great program. I love what they do. Um, I love the way that they help and educate. Um, but it's like, we're also new to this, you know, um, it, it's, it's really interesting when you look at it, how far we've come in a short amount of time when this used to be a subject that was super taboo and you couldn't talk about it. And, you know, we swept it under the rug and now it's just, I love it. Cause it was just like, we're gun owners coming up with our own programs coming out saying, Hey, look, we're not going to, we're not going to give an inch on, on these things. You're not going to convince us of, of um, the things that you say are the right thing to do in terms of restriction, but we can, we can certainly look at ways to save lives and messaging and, and everything like that and work together and find out what we can do now. Right. Um, okay. And it's pretty cool to see. So, you know, I'm really, I'm really glad that you pass those things out because these are the things that people think we don't do. You know, well, this is like, this is the grunt work. This is the this is the you know knuckles in the dirt, um, un unglamorous, unglorified, effective needle moving work that um, politics doesn't usually get done. It's not flashy. Doesn't make headlines. It's not a bunch of blue check people um, talking about how they're making a difference. We're actually making a difference. It just takes a lot longer and nobody notices because we're too busy actually working instead of self-promoting about the work we want to do we're doing it and it's and it takes it takes a long time because you know and i don't even know if this would have happened had multiple organizations not simultaneously been doing the same kind of thing together you get uh dc project you know given a different voice and a different look you got all the the minority community folks who are pulling together for the same reason you got NSSF and walk talk America doing what they're doing. You got hold my guns. I mean, it's like there's this collective groundswell of the people moving the same direction. It seems. And I don't know that one group could have even pulled it off if we wanted to. It's great. I mean, it's like, you know, look back in time, like gunpowder seems to have developed in two different places at the same time on earth. And there's no way they could have corresponded. Like the great idea spawned in multiple spots at the same time. Pretty cool. Yeah, it just proves we really are a collective as much as people want to be individual. It's just like, I don't know. I have a horrible analogy, but when um, NASA... Does it involve paint? No, no. It's it's the shuttle. It's even worse. (laughs) But, like, I was in high school when the shuttle exploded and everybody was watching. And within a week... Everyone I knew knew the same joke. What does NASA stand for? Do you know that joke? No, um, I used to. I remember that. Yeah, I remember I, that. I, I don't remember. To. Need it's, another seven astronauts, astronauts right? That was it. But yeah. like everyone in the country knew it. And it's not like we had a big telephone thing. Right. And, and so it's like as much as we want to be unique and individual, this is why I totally believe in holistic everything. And people just don't realize that when they're, stabbing their anger and their hate towards someone they're really allowing it to bounce off of themselves and and it's just that we really are one community but people don't want to accept that i I was born as a tree hugging hippie as a child also um so i literally would hug my trees thank them before we cut them down for firewood for the the heat that they were going to give us for the winter that's amazing Literally a tree hugging. That is amazing. And then you cut it down. 
and then we cut it down. But we thanked it and blessed it for its life and its heat that it was going to give to us for the winter. So we thanked it for its sacrifice um, to keep us warm all winter long. Boy, you talk about a multidimensional person, a tree-hugging Trump voter. They exist. They actually exist. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. You're a great person to put in front of any politician um, because you can go where where you can go where a lot of places, you can go a lot of places where other people can't, right? Um, some people are, are stuck this way and have their blinders on and then others are able to kind of adjust and relate to people. And that that's, that's why I think the important, that's why, you know, when it comes to the firearms industry, it's like, I want those people in the forefront. You know, I know there are certain people that I can drop them in any room um, and they're going to do just fine. Yeah. So it's important. This All right, what good. room are we going to next? <laughs> ah, this is good. I mean, we're over an hour now. This has been a really good interview. We covered a lot, went deep, um, got emotional. That was that's always good. And um, I think we modeled for other people what's possible too. You know, if, if you're sitting at home going, "What can I do? What can I do?" Do something, right? Um, yeah. And then commit to it, and have your have your eyeballs on many years down the road, not months, because this stuff doesn't change in months. You don't change the hearts and minds of people collectively instantly it it takes you know hard work and individual uh contact to to make that happen so uh mike always asks our guests the same thing every time and it hasn't gotten old yet yeah that's true brooke how do you tend to your mental health these days pedicures manicures and massage (laughs) i like that we haven't had that answer yet jake that's a new one I, I was waiting for her to elaborate, but that I don't think it needs elaboration. Well, it, it's my favorite thing. And actually, sorry, facials are actually my absolute favorite. I love having my face and my head rubbed. That's like the best thing ever. That truly zens me out fully. That's awesome. That was by far the most succinct answer, too. I'm not sure I know what to do with that. Well, I, I got to try tapping yesterday. Tapping was pretty cool. What's that? So it's there's a thing called tapping meditation where it's like you literally are tapping different parts of your body while you're saying things like how to deal with stuff. That's and it a, was interesting. So it was a new type of meditation I got to try. Yeah. There's some new, uh, there's some new emerging research on that type of intervention with regard to brain rewiring. So most people are familiar with EMDR. It's um, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming is the acronym. And that involves tapping. And it's what's called a bilateral integration technique. So you got two hemispheres, you got two sides of your body. And as you're coordinating all this stuff and t- going through your traumas and whatnot, you can, you can ground yourself, process through, let go, reprogram. And then there's some light flashing movement too. And now what you're referencing there, um, now that you say it, I, I have heard of that. But it's it has to do with how the brain absorbs knowledge while it's being more or less distracted um with intent so that's that's pretty cool that's a really good uh, self-care idea where, yeah, where'd you well, find out about it and where could where could people go to ooh, um it was a link in one of my emails but if you just look up <laughs> tapping meditation it'll come up somewhere okay and i have i have i have the, I have the shorter version of what you just talked about actually that i teach my students because a lot of my students come in and they're freaked out by guns entirely like they're shaking and sweating and so I teach them about eye movement as far as when we're depressed, what we do, what do we do? We look down, our shoulders slump, right. our head goes down. Right. If I'm looking at you right in the eyes as best I can on Zoom, <laughs> I am with you. 
And then if I'm still feeling freaked out by simply moving my eyes up to the light source, all of a sudden I can relax more. So those just three little positions versus getting super fancy with, you know, coordinating everything hmm. can help adjust your physiology, which helps your emotions. And that's one of the things I would teach on a suicide French on Saturday is notice that you're doing depression when you do it and just look up and put your shoulders back and give your poor little body some oxygen and it'll help at least for a moment. Wow. I didn't even know that. That's, that's awesome. I never yeah. heard uh, of that. Tony Robbins, man, Tony Robbins. <laughs> And pedicures. Well, thank you so much for carving out the time. Uh, Appreciate you dropping in all the way from Connecticut uh, into Nevada, not Nevada. Please don't ever say Nevada. It's Nevada. And uh, we we appreciate you, and we look forward to more collaboration down the road. I'm sure it's coming because, as we mentioned earlier, the community tends to, you know, interconnect and pull together pretty well. So on behalf of our – Oh, wait. How how do people get a hold of you, Brooke? Uh, Brooke Cheney at Facebook, um, a great start shooting school. Uh, that, those are my main things. Uh, you can drop a message to me, a great start shooting school. And that's kind of it. My suicide bridge on Saturday is just that it's a Facebook live on my personal page. And when we're talking about Sandy Hook and stuff, I actually created a website called save thousands, not just one. And it's got a lot of research on suicide prevention, violence prevention, stuff like that from CDC, FBI, and non-leaning one way or another kind of groups. Is that spelled out? How, how do you, how is that? Well, yeah. So I'm lazy. So you can spell it out, save thousands, not just one, or you can just take the first letter. So stnjo.com. So nice yeah, nobody wants to write down, save thousands, not just one. <laughs> Yeah, well, good. So, I, I mean, I'm sure people will get in contact with you. I, I believe, um, you know, what you're doing is important. Thank you for drawing attention to to this matter. Um, the more that you fight in the open, uh, the more people will get comfortable talking about these things, and uh, you know, hopefully, people can heal and understand that they're not alone. So, I appreciate you coming on. Sure, my pleasure. On behalf of arms core which is our chief sponsor for this podcast uh go to armscore.com and check them out and their products we love them we appreciate them they've been solid this entire time and on behalf of the walk the talk america family and the zephyr wellness family we wish you all great mental wellness thank you very much for listening share this around give us a rating and review subscribe and take care bye-bye let's stop making new laws Let's figure out which ones actually work, if there are ones that are working, and enforce those.